The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 30. Torpedoed. There was no sense waiting around in New York for the Keystone Four to return. Edgar had made it quite clear that with me out of the way, he was planning to take control of the act, and so Stan needed my help. I'd gone straight back to the station and would be in Albany by seven, plenty of time to make the last performance of the evening. The first person I encountered as I mounted the stairs from the stage door two at a time was Ted Banks, still wearing the policeman's outfit from the matinee. "'Oh, look out! What are you doing here?' he cried. "'Sorry, Ted, your services will no longer be required,' I slurred through my still sore lips and teeth, pushing past him. "'Wait, what? You can't do that!' he said plaintively, trotting up behind me. Stan was pacing the corridor outside the dressing rooms. When he saw me, his eyes widened, and he sighed as he realised immediately what had happened. "'You didn't make it. I am sorry. You must be so disappointed.' "'Yes,' I said. "'But thank goodness you're here. You're a godsend. You can do the last show.' "'What? Looking like this?' I said, indicating my battered features. "'You look a damn sight better than Ed,' Stan said, dropping his voice. "'Really?' "'Yes,' Ted said, joining our conversation. "'You must have given him a right doing over.' "'He started it,' I growled, and Ted took a step back. "'Ren's looking after him, but I think it would be a mercy if you could take over,' Stan said. "'He doesn't seem quite to know what day it is.' "'Well, he probably imagines it's the middle of next week,' I said, "'because I'm pretty sure that's where I knocked him into.' I looked into the dressing room to see Ed laid out on a settee there with his wife dabbing gently at his forehead with a wet towel. She looked up at me as I came in, and I saw a triumphant half-smile flit across her lovely face. "'How's he doing?' I asked. "'He's sleeping,' she said. "'Let him sleep, then. I'll do the show,' I said. "'Thank you, Arthur,' Wren said, and I wondered exactly what I was being thanked for. "'Well, I stepped back behind the Chester Conklin moustache "'and resumed my career, having only missed the afternoon performance, "'which meant that Ed had only had the one go at the role.' He was not a tremendous success either, as Stan confided on the train back into New York the next morning. He was pretty scrambled, Stan said. I'm thinking we should keep Ted on for this next week. Let Ed take a bit of time off to recover. What do you say? Fine by me, I said. Privately, between me, myself and the bedpost, I was getting quite a kick out of this. Ed had given me his best shots, and I'd been up and about more or less immediately, although I'd missed the Lusitania, of course. In return, I'd thrashed him so badly that he could barely function— I think that showed pretty neatly where things stood between us, and he'd think twice about trying that again. Keeping Ted with us for the week also gave me a bit more time to work out what I was going to do about getting to England. It is going to take me a while to save up the blasted fare again, I said, but maybe I'll be in a position to go in a month or two, if I lay off the beer. And food. Well, let's do what we can to keep Ed sweet about that, Stan said. At least we're in and around New York for the next few weeks. And if Ted finds something else to do by the time you're ready to leave, then good luck to him. Keep in touch with him, I said, in a low voice, glancing over at where Banks was sitting with Wren and the invalid. When I get back with Tilly and we ditch the Hurleys, we'll still need a cop. Stan nodded, sat back, and so that was the plan. I would continue with Stan and the Hurleys until such time as I'd made enough cash to have another go at crossing the Atlantic. That was the plan for that whole week at Proctor's 23rd Street Theatre, with Ed Hurley lazing around the apartment like an invalid making a big deal of his recovery and of not talking to me. That was the plan right up to the Saturday, when we woke to these shocking headlines on the front of the New York Times. Lusitania sunk by a submarine, probably 1,260 dead. 
twice torpedoed off Irish coast, sinks in 15 minutes. Washington believes that a grave crisis is at hand. I wandered around in a daze for the rest of that weekend, and as it happens, found sleep difficult to come by for weeks afterwards. In my mind's eye I kept seeing the moment described by one eyewitness, who'd stood at the rail and watched the U-boat's conning tower break the surface, then tracked two torpedoes carving through the water towards the very liner he was standing on. The explosions sent splinters of the hull flying through the air in all directions, and the Lusitania began to list to one side, then slide under the waves. Some seven hundred were rescued and taken to Ireland, but I had no doubt that if I'd been there, I would have been among the majority that perished, and that Atlantic chill seemed to grip my very soul. I read every detail I could get my hands on, and was just absorbing a harrowing description of friends and relatives waiting helplessly on the dock at Liverpool, waiting for news of loved ones, when with a start I suddenly remembered I'd wired Tilly that I was taking the ill-fated ship, and had completely forgotten to wire again and say I hadn't. What if she travelled over to Liverpool to meet the Lusitania? She and Wallace might be there, even now, trying to find out what had happened to me. What could I do? I turned the options over in my overheating mind as I raced helter-skelter round to the Western Union office. How could I have been so stupid? It would have been bad enough even if the ship hadn't been sunk. She could have been waiting there, watching all the passengers disembarking, not understanding why I wasn't there. I couldn't see how to get word to her except by sending a wire to the Great Yarmouth address, which would mean she could not possibly hear I was alive until she had given up all hope and gone home again. Or maybe that's where she was now, waiting and weeping. I sent a simple message. Not on Lusitania. Stop. Safe in NY. Then I rushed back to the apartment and wrote a grovelling letter begging her forgiveness for being so thoughtless, but assuring her that I was safe and well and would come up with another way for us to be together again though what that might be was, at that point, beyond my powers of imagination. I could only hope that by the time it arrived she would have calmed down. Over the next days the grave crisis developed. The fact that more than a hundred of the dead were American citizens meant that the American government came under great pressure to declare war on Germany, and we wondered what this would mean for us. President Wilson seemed determined not to take the final step, however, contenting himself with demanding assurances from the Germans that nothing like this would ever happen again. The Germans, for their part, insisted that the Lusitania was carrying contraband munitions which had contributed to the ship's destruction and rapid sinking. Maybe they had a point, or maybe the 90 tonnes of unrefrigerated lard and butter listed on board as destined for the Royal Navy Weapons Testing Establishment in Essex really had been heading to the canteen for making cakes. The thought that someone, somewhere, might not be above using civilian passengers as a kind of human shield sent shivers down my spine. We were booked for a week at the Proctors in Newark, New Jersey, which was just about close enough for us to get back to our Manhattan flat with its Chaplin memorabilia mantelpiece at night. One morning, in the middle of that week, Stan came in from an early morning walk just as I was surfacing for the day, and he wordlessly thrust a copy of the New York Times into my hand, indicating a small item at the bottom of an inside page. I squinted at it, but my eyes were not yet focusing. "'What is it?' I said. "'Just read it out.' Stan took the paper back. "'English comedian Arthur Dando,' he read. "'What? Formerly of the Fred Carno troupe? "'What? Let me finish, for goodness sake. "'English comedian Arthur Dando, formerly of the Fred Carno troupe, "'is believed to be among those whose bodies have not been recovered "'after the Lusitania tragedy.' "'Christ above!' I swore. "'It doesn't say that!' I snatched the newspaper from him and forced my eyes to concentrate. "'Good God!' I say, "'Do you think this will be in the English papers?' "'Very likely,' I'd say. 
"'What if my father sees it? My mother?' "'I should say you have some more letters to write,' Stan said, "'and you'd better hope the mailboats have better luck.' I was still frantically composing, writing to my family, and again to Tilly for good measure, just in case my previous communications had foundered for some reason, when Ed Hurley came into the living room and called a company meeting. He'd recovered sufficiently to return to work, and was just about ready to start throwing his weight around again. "'I think the time has come to make it absolutely clear where everyone stands,' Ed began, puffing his chest out pompously. "'All right,' Stan said, with a friendly smile. It is clear, after the terrible recent event, that Arthur will not be returning to Blighty any time soon, nor will he be bringing Tilly and their son over here to resume their former careers. Thanks for reminding me, I said. Which means, does it not, that Wren and myself should no longer regard ourselves as stand-ins for Tilly Beckett and Freddie Carnot Jr., but as fully-fledged and equal shareholders in our joint enterprise, to wit, the Keystone Four? The Keystone Four, Stan nodded. And we should have an equal say in the future direction of the Act, and any further decisions, either artistic or financial, should be arrived at as the result of full and frank discussions between the four members on an absolutely equal footing. "'What's he doing here, then?' I asked, looking up from my writing and jerking a thumb at Ted Banks. "'True enough, that is a side issue, but now that I am recovered from—' he glanced at me— "'we no longer have any current need for Ted here.' "'Oh,' Ted said. "'Well,' "'That's just dandy.' "'Sorry, Ted,' Stan said, and Wren gave him a consoling pat on the hand. "'So, are we agreed?' Stan was a fair-minded soul, and could see no reason to quibble. "'I think that sounds perfectly reasonable. Don't you, Arthur?' I shrugged, not looking up from my letter-writing. "'Don't bother to ask me what I think,' Ted muttered. "'I don't know why you even asked me over.' "'To say thank you for helping us out,' Wren said. "'That's right,' Stan chipped in. "'You were great.' And if anything else, he trailed off, looking to me for help. Yes, if any of the equal-sharing members of this collective ever decides to sandbag another equal-sharing member in the gentleman's facilities, we will most definitely be in touch, I said. Well, if the other members can only manage to keep their damned hands off one another, then Ed burst out. All right, all right. Let's calm down, Stan said. I think we can all agree that Ed and Wren are no longer standing in for Tilly and Fred, and should have a say in what we do and where we go. That's fine. Absolutely fine. Isn't it, Arthur? I shrugged again. So, Stan said, guiding Ed back to his seat, was there something in particular that you wanted? You and Wren. Wren looked at Ed, and Ed pointed at the mantelpiece, where a row of little plaster of Paris statues of Charlie stood, their heads cocked archly to one side. Yes, Ed said. I want to be chaplain. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 31. The Hard Way. 
Whenever we put it to the vote, it came out two to two, of course, with me backing Stan and Wren sticking up for Ed. Ted Banks was sitting there the first time we thrashed it out, but neither side wanted him to have a casting vote, and in any case he got up and left long before we reached any kind of resolution. Stan proposed contacting the Bostocks to see what they thought, whereupon Ed threatened to leave with Wren at once unless he was given his way. Well, that really would have dropped us in it, so in the end, Stan and I had a hard decision to make. Perhaps we should let the bastard have a go, I said to Stan, as we had our umpteenth private chat about the ridiculous situation. Let him find out the hard way. And then what? Stan said. He'll see the light and we'll go back to how things were before. Stranger things have happened, I said. Which was how we came to be standing in the wings at the Proctors in Newark that weekend, myself adorned with the Chester Conklin soup strainer, Wren in her Mabel Normand outfit and wig, Stan in a Keystone Cop uniform, the enormous painted K had almost completely faded by this time, and Edgar Hurley strutting up and down in the dark, giving his cane a few last practice twirls and twitching his moustache. The clothes had been a better fit on Stan, which is to say they were a more accurate reflection of Chaplin himself than they were on Hurley, who was a stockier fellow altogether. The jacket was so tight it would barely do up over his chest, while the pants seemed to be more or less the right size for him. But still, the impersonation wasn't going to stand or fall by the costume, was it? What the next few minutes would tell us was whether Edgar Hurley had the comic chops to carry it off. And as the act before us traipsed off and our music struck up, I couldn't quite work out which would be better, Ed falling on his face, or Ed actually making a decent fist of it. A good night for Ed would be marginally more enjoyable for all of us in the short term, but a calamity might resolve the issue of who should be chaplain once and for all, and so would probably be worth enduring a bit of misery for. The important thing, I told myself, was to do the same job I always did, so that whatever came next, it wouldn't be my fault. The lights went on low, as usual, and the nutty burglars tiptoed onto the stage to begin their larcenous night's work. Ed entered, as Stan always did, with a trademark bit of Chaplin-esque business, sauntering on and bumping into a hat-stand in the near dark, and then turning and apologising to it, lifting his battered derby, and then becoming annoyed that the hat-stand was seemingly not accepting his apology and pushing it over. This all went down fine, with some laughs and giggles from the crowd. Then I, as the other burglar, would remonstrate with Charlie, reminding him that we needed to be quiet. Stan would look a little shamefaced at this and would manage to get the audience's sympathy, but Ed lacked the finesse for a touch of that kind and simply shoved me aside to take centre stage. Well, all right then, I thought. You want to carry the thing all by yourself? Be my guest. I set about trying to open the safe while Ed went through his whole repertoire of Chaplin moves, things he'd clearly been rehearsing in front of a mirror or perhaps his wife. He certainly hadn't bothered to share them with me or with Stan. Where Stan had worked his pitch-perfect Charlie impression into the fabric of the sketch, Ed had simply decided to do all the things he'd thought of straight out at the stalls, basically hitting them over the head with Chaplin, Chaplin, Chaplin. I glanced into the wings, and Stan was standing there, out of the audience's line of vision, with a perplexed frown on his long face. The crowd that evening were in a reasonably good mood, but after a while Ed had simply exhausted his credit with them, and the laughter began to die down. It was all very well seeing a bloke dressed as Chaplin cavorting around for a minute or two, but then they would have liked a bit of a story as well. Wren made her entrance then to a nice round of applause as the audience recognised that she was meant to be Mabel. Her first interaction was usually with me, the burglar she could see attempting to open the safe, whereupon Charlie would appear and try and explain the situation. However, Ed grabbed Wren by the arm and spun her to face him, thus excising my little scene altogether. Fair enough, I said to myself. 
If you don't want my help, you shan't have it, you arrogant so-and-so. The key point of that memorable performance came when Ed reached one of Stan's real show-stopping moments. It was a little sequence in which he managed to combine distracting Mabel with all the flirty physical dexterity that Chaplin himself could possibly have employed, whilst at the same time hurrying me, his colleague, up. Stan captured not only Charlie's physicality, but also the very spirit of his character, the character the audience had already so fallen in love with, and it would never fail to draw a huge laugh from every corner of the room, followed eight or nine times out of ten, I should say, by a round of applause we had grown accustomed to waiting for. Ed managed a rough facsimile of the action, but the only thing about it that said Chaplin was his little moustache. There was none of the impishness, none of the grace, none of the clockwork perfection that Stan could mimic to the very life. It was like a water buffalo attempting the ballet. Even the jacket chose this moment to give up the unequal struggle and popped its buttons, which went skittering across the apron. Now, it was Ed's first time, of course, and maybe if he'd let Stan guide him through a little bit of rehearsal, he'd have been able to do a better job of it, but he had chosen not to. The audience tittered a little, and then sat there waiting for whatever was to happen next. They hadn't had their socks knocked off, as previous crowds had, but they weren't unhappy, and the sketch could have continued to its conclusion merrily enough. In fact, Stan, as the policeman, stepped out onto the stage at that very moment to begin the denouement. Ed wasn't having it, though. Holding both his hands up in the air, he strode to the front of the apron. Not a chaplain stride, either, an angry Edgar Hurley strut. He looked like an exasperated headmaster about to tick off a naughty school assembly where all the children had somehow bitterly disappointed him. No, 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 he said in his own voice, not the character one he'd been using to flirt with Mabel. That will not do at all. At this point, we always get a big laugh and then a round of applause. Come on, let's hear you. He began leading his own round of applause and the audience, bemused, slowly joined in with him to create a gentle, bewildered ovation. "'You can do better than that!' Ed bellowed. "'Come on, let's give it some oomph!' "'Jesus!' Stan breathed. The applause slowly built up to what Ed, in full pantomime mode now, finally regarded as acceptable, and then he waved the audience quiet again. "'All right,' he said. "'Now I'm going to do that bit over again, and you know what you have to do.' "'No,' Stan said, loud enough for me to hear. "'Stop him, for God's sake!' "'Um... "'Waffles?' I shouted, trying to attract Hurley's attention. "'Just a minute, you,' Ed said, returning to his wife. She too realised, anyone would, that demanding that an audience watch a gag be performed a second time, with applause required of them afterwards, was going to be uncomfortable. "'Listen to your friend,' Wren said urgently. "'Look, there's a policeman!' Ed had gone to a peculiar place. Having once begun a dialogue with the audience as himself, he felt liberated to continue it. "'Aha!' he cried. "'Here's the fellow. Look. Look at this chap. "'He thinks he should be the funny man in this little vignette. "'What do you think of that, eh? Look at him!' The audience did look at Stan, and they looked at Ed, and they clearly didn't know what to make of the question. They'd seen Ed, and they hadn't seen Stan do anything except walk on stage, so how could they possibly compare? There was a shout from the stalls. "'Get on with it!' This was followed by a murmuring, the noise any comic performer worth his salt could identify as, "'Time's up!' and Stan's instincts were as good as anyone's. "'The bomb!' he hissed at me, but I was ahead of him, already grabbing the black ball and lighting the firework on top. I threw it to Stan, who lobbed it to Wren, who handed it to her husband. "'Not yet,' he said crossly, but then realised that he had to go along with us or this last effect would be ruined. He gave a great harumph and passed the parcel on. 
Ed wasn't finished, though, with his reworking of our routine. Just at the point when he was due to chuck the bomb out of the window at the policeman, instead, he suddenly ran off stage with it. The explosion duly occurred in the wings as per, but it wasn't Stan the policeman who returned with his face blackened and hair on end. It was Ed, as Chaplin, who had appropriated the climactic joke for himself. Then he strode forwards to take a curtain call before some enterprising soul doused the lights on him. See? Ed cried triumphantly as soon as we were down in the dressing room. Ed, Wren said, but our husband was not to be halted. There's no great mystery to playing Chaplin, Ed went on. Just slap on a toothbrush moustache and do a silly walk and the suckers lap it up. Is that what you think was happening? I said, marvelling at his capacity for self-delusion. Of course. It helps to have funny bones, of course. You can get a little bit extra out of it. Like Stan, you mean? Oh, Stan does well enough, but his performance is such a slavish copy. Indeed, it's something else. A bit of, I don't know, balls. Stan was standing quietly, looking at the floor. His natural desire to avoid confrontation was struggling with his desire to knock Edgar's block off, and it was clearly an epic battle. Balls? Is that what you think? I said, laughing. Yes, I do, Ed pouted. I've always thought that Chaplin was somewhat effete, and he'd be better served by a more masculine approach. Ed, Wren began again, just let's all go for a nice quiet drink, shall we, and then we can... So I think I've demonstrated to everyone's satisfaction that I can play the part every bit as well as Mr Jefferson here, and so I propose that from now on, no. Huh? Ed looked round to see who had spoken. There, standing in the doorway, each wearing an expression of stone-cold fury, were Claude Bostock and his brother Gordon, our agents. "'Good heavens!' Stan cried. "'Claude! Gordon!' "'Oh, I see,' Ed said, putting his hand on his hips. "'You wired them.' "'Wired them?' Stan said. "'Of course not.' He turned to our agents. "'Come in. Welcome. Sit down. How lovely to see you.' "'Would that we could say the same,' Claude said. "'But we went to some considerable trouble to bring representatives of the Orpheum circuit with us this evening, in the belief that you were ready to step up to bigger time. "'But we were wrong. Were we not, Gordon?' "'Oh, we were way off the mark.' Gordon said, inspecting his fingernails. "'Whatever possessed you,' Claude said, "'what evil, stupid spirit persuaded you to make the changes that you have made? "'Stan, you are the premier chaplain impersonator currently working, "'and there are hundreds of them, believe me. "'All the theatre managers we have spoken to say the same, "'that you are a marvel, that you are the little fellow to the life. "'And yet what do we see when we come along to see for ourselves? "'You're playing a walk-on, and this lumpen oaf is hogging the act.' Ha-ha-ha! I laughed. Lump and oaf! How dare you! Ed cried, going red in the face. How dare you! Gordon stepped forwards. I'll tell you how he dares, he said coldly. We've invested in you, our time, our energy, our contacts, our reputations, which entitles us to tell you when you have made a catastrophic error of judgment. I don't have to stand here and take this, Ed blustered. Oh, do be quiet, Gordon said. "'Yes, Ed, be quiet,' Wren said, her patience finally snapping. "'The Orpheum circuit,' Stan said, closing his eyes. "'Yes, I'm afraid they were not sold,' Claude said. "'But all may not altogether be lost. First of all, though, we must restore Stan to the chaplain role. "'That much is absolutely certain.' "'Wait a minute,' Ed said. "'We all have to agree.' "'I agree,' I said quickly. "'Me too,' Stan nodded. "'And me,' Wren said. "'Oh, oh, I see.' Ed shouted, his face turning puce. I see how the land lies. Well, I won't hold you up any longer. I quit. Hurley grabbed his coat and stormed out of the dressing room. 
Wren watched him go, and then with a little apologetic shrug to us all, she picked up her own coat and hat and followed. "'Don't worry,' Stan said. "'I'll talk him round. When he's calmed down a bit, I'll get him to come back.' Gordon Bostock looked at his fingernails, as if finally pleased with how they looked. "'Don't,' he said. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.